There is a a method to uh, my madness this weekend. I wanted to begin by entertaining uh, two questions as to what faith is not. Last night I tried to say faith is not sort of a the power of positive thinking writ large, um, nor this morning is it opposed to your rationality. What I want to try to do tonight and tomorrow morning is try to be more constructive and figure out exactly what it is. Um, I remember, uh, I'm going to take you back to the conversation that I had with the young man uh, that, that I met with, that set me forth on this whole question. When he asked me the question, Les, I don't know how to believe something, he got to the point where he was asking so many questions about the nature of what it meant to believe that at one point he said, you know, Les, I'm really not even sure what it would feel like if I was actually believing. In other words, when I'm engaged in the actual activity of having faith, I don't even know how I would know it if I was doing it. I think that's a great question. And we get a glimpse into what the, to the answer to that question towards the end of the life of the Apostle Paul, whom we've been considering so much this weekend. 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, we get a little glimpse inside this man's psyche. And it's life-changing. So let's give our attention then to the reading of God's Word. Paul says, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray before we begin. Lord Jesus, if believing is an actual activity, we may find ourselves this evening doing just such a thing. But if what you have said about us already is enough, is true, then that will not happen unless you show up. So, Lord Jesus, would you by your spirit, as you promised, for no other reason than that we asked, would you come here and pour out your spirit upon us so that we might walk away faithful, believing people. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When Paul gets down and personal about his own inner life with Timothy, he opens up about his own self-understanding. And so that's what I want to look at tonight. Two simple points. Number one, what does Paul think of himself? And number two, what does that teach us about faith? I'm going to be relying a lot upon the passage that we read from Luke chapter 7 this morning. So if you'll recall some of that, we'll get back to that. 
But to me, I am most intrigued by this question of how Paul views himself. Mind you, we understand historically that the books of 1st and 2nd Timothy were some of the last that Paul wrote from prison in Rome just months before his execution. These are the reflections of a man at the end of his Christian life. And what does he say about himself? Well, the first thing he says about himself is that he is the worst. First thing out of the gate, that he is the worst. This confuses people a lot. Christians have gotten to where they will talk about themselves as if they are the worst of sinners. You know, the great Bunyan entitled his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And what Paul is saying is that if you go out and survey all of the sinners out there, I am the worst of that group. Now look, you're college students, you're enlightened, you've been around a fair amount of religious people. How does that sit with you? In my history, people tend to have one of two reactions to people, Christian types, when they talk that way. The first idea is that they say, well, you know, Paul is simply being fake. In other words, this is that sort of pious exaggeration that comes with Christians where they're, you know, just so much more afflicted than thou. Oh, well, you know, I'm just a, I'm a horrible sinner. But nobody actually believes it. And you kind of want to say, Paul, get off it. You're the author of what? Third of the books of the New Testament. You're, you healed sick people. You've received the word of God. Really? But I think Paul actually believes this more deeply than we might think. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is talking about his rank among the rest of the apostles. And he looks at himself as being the least of the apostles. Later on in Ephesians 3, he talks about his relationship to the saints of God. And he says that I am the least of all the saints. In Romans chapter 7, he's talking about his battle with sin. That he keeps doing the things that he doesn't want to do. And he doesn't do the things that he knows he's supposed to do. Until finally he says, what a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? No, 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 no. This is not like a whim of Paul sort of bragging in a pious way. He really does believe this. And to be honest with you, this is what turns people off from Christianity in a big way. Uh, one of the, my favorite contrasts in looking at the Apostle Paul came in a sermon I heard years ago by Tim Keller, uh, pastor of New York City. I'm sure I've never heard of him. Um, and he was talking about how New Yorkers despise this part of Christianity because it makes people hate themselves. And he referred to a wonderful review that had come out in a late edition of Augustine's Confessions. You know, Augustine wrote more than just City of God, City of Man. He wrote a little autobiography called his Confessions. And he tells the story about being a child. And when he was a kid, apparently, he was running through some uh, woods with some friends, and they noticed that there was a pear orchard off to the side. And so the friends, sort of being conniving like they were, decided that they would break into the pear orchard and steal a bunch of pears. Well, after they had stolen them all, they threw them away in a ditch. And he looks back and remembers this experience as being one of the seminal moments in him really understanding the depths of his own sin. The reviewer, though, who is reviewing this new edition, uh, put it this way in the New York Times review of books. He says, child of a dominant mother and victim of a guilt-ridden conscience, Augustine writes the bewilderingly haunted confessions in which infantile peccadilloes like stealing fruit and adolescent fumblings with instinctive sexuality are bewailed with all the anguish of a frustrated perfectionist. Augustine frustrated perfectionist. Only our time can come up with that about the church fathers. 
What's he saying? She, the, the, the person is saying, they're just victims of bad upbringing. The rest of us are normal. Lighten up, Paul. Right? But Paul says, no, no, you don't understand. When I, in my roots, in my history, is that I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor of Christians. But then he gives his most vivid description in that last thing there in verse, I think it's in verse 13. And my translation says an insolent opponent. Some of your texts will say that I was a violent man. The word there that the translators are trying to get a hold of is the word that we know our root of, hubris. You know this from your Greek mythology classes? What was hubris? Hubris is a destructive pride. In other words, what Paul was saying is, in my background, which by the way, was more religious than anyone in this room could ever claim to attain. He said, if, I, if you look at my background, I suddenly realized that I had a motive that made me want to feel better than everyone else. At the root of all of my religious doings, a thousand times more religious than going on a retreat for a weekend with a bunch of religious people. I realized in a moment that I did it because I loved looking down on other people. I love the fact that it made me, in comparison to others, feel and look better. Because of all of my goodness, because of the reason, the motives for it, it made me a trampler. I was beating down other people with my very actions. Isn't that amazing? What a vivid description of even his own good deeds. But here's what's so crazy. Augustine is saying the exact same thing. In his uh, confessions, he says this. He says, when I willed to commit theft of the pears, I did so not because I was driven to it by any kind of need. I stole a thing of which I had plenty of my own and of much better quality. Listen to this. I did it because it was forbidden. It was the sin that I loved, not what it held for me, but the sin itself. In other words, he said, I didn't have any desire for this fruit. And so my mother said, stay out of the pear orchard and don't steal any of that fruit. And the minute that that happened, Augustine said, I wanted them. My friends, that has nothing to do with fruit. What Augustine was saying is, I didn't need fruit. I needed to be the absolute ruler of my life. And until my mother said no, it didn't mean anything to me. But at that moment, I realized that I had a motive deep down of sovereignty. I wanted to be the master of my own universe. Look, this is the, what the essence of what the Bible calls sin. The sins of childhood differ only in object from the worst ones later in life. Do they not? You get two acorns that fall in different places. One falls on sort of a rocky, uh, uh, not very good soil and sprouts up a little bit. The other one lands in good soil and springs up to be a great tree. In other words, just because uh, you have not grown up to become a Hitler or an Ivan the Terrible doesn't mean, at least in the Bible's categories, that you don't lack the talent. Because on the inside of every human being is an anti-God bias that we learned this morning actually filters information out about God. And in the end, it turns out, wants to dethrone him. Look, what Paul and Augustine are saying is, is that we are the worst of sinners. Paul was the very strict moralist, the rule keeper. Augustine was the pagan, licentious pagan. Augustine would have been organizing, you know, movements for sexual liberation back in the 60s. Paul would have been standing on the sides, picketing them all. But at the root, both of them are exactly the same. 
Which kind of person are you? My guess is college has been one of two sides for you. College has a way of sort of drawing things out. There are two ways to run away from God in college. You can run away from God with your irreligion. By looking around and acknowledging the rules and saying, I don't care about those. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to fulfill every lust, every desire, every motive that I ever had. But there's just, an e- there's just as much an easy way to run away from God with your religion. And that is that I'm going to put myself on a treadmill of doing the right things at the right time, especially compared to those people with whom I'm sorority sisters or fraternity brothers with. And I'll show them. My friends, both of them are separating you from the heart of God because in the end, they are still desiring a motive of sovereignty in the midst of them. Look, Paul says, if you want to understand what it means for me to be me, I have to tell you that it begins with the conviction that I am the worst. But second, he says, and this is where it gets a little nutty, He says, because I am the worst, I'm the best. Now, you might have missed this. Bear with me. Notice, Paul looks and says, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited power as an example. Did you see that there in verse 16? Now, most of you, when you read that word example, you think that Paul is talking about Jesus. That is, Jesus did what he did by showing mercy to me so that he could be an example to us of how we ought to show mercy. That is not the grammar of the passage. The example Paul is talking about is him. Jesus did all that in me, he says, to show you the ultimate type of what a Christian ought to be. That's the word. It's not just the word example, which which would be the word type or tupas, but it's a hooper tupas, a hyper type. I am the most ultimate version of a Christian that you could possibly get at. Now think about this. We don't. We do not get this at all, right? We have a whole lot of trouble when someone looks and says, oh, "I'm the worst." We say that's pathological. You have a bad self-image. But then they turn around and say, "But I'm the best Christian in the world." We say oh, that's pathological too, because now you're conceited. My friends, if you can't put those two things together, then my guess is you have not discovered the radically different self-image that only the Christian gospel can place in the heart of a man or a woman. Look, y'all, Paul says he is so bad, I am so bad and was so bad, that I can be an encouragement to everyone in this room. I persecuted the church. But you know what? If I can deal with my conscience, if I can deal with my conscience, having gone from city to city to city throughout the ancient Near East, probably stumbling across family members of people that I had put to death, If I can deal with my conscience, you can deal with your conscience with the power of this gospel as well. And then finally gets to verse 17, and he just busts wide open. Did that look like sort of in a parenthesis in the midst of the text? He's telling this story. I'm the worst, but now I'm the best, blah, blah, blah. Now to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And you think to yourself, what was that there for? You want to know what it is? Paul simply erupts. He suddenly finds that he can't stop praising God. Reminds me a whole lot of the story where Jesus is sitting around with the Pharisees and all of a sudden a a, a sinful woman, put that in quotes in the New Testament, we call that a prostitute. 
comes inside and begins to weep over Jesus' feet and to dry his feet with her hair. And of course, the Pharisee, I'm assuming, looks at Jesus with this woman of the night and my guess is he probably thinks to himself, hmm, I guess they have a prior relationship. If Jesus knew that this was a sinner, he wouldn't let her be at his feet. And so Simon says something that you never want to hear from Jesus. Simon, I have something to tell you. Go ahead, teacher. Simon, imagine two men owe someone else money. The one man owes a small sum. The other man owes a large sum. But the other individual decides to forgive them both of their debts. Who do you think will love the man more? Simon scratches his chin and says, well, I assume the man who owed the most money. Jesus said, you're exactly right, Simon, because he who has been forgiven much loves much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Paul says, the bigness of my sinfulness has created the bigness of grace. And the bigness of that grace has caused me to be swallowed up in love and joy and praise. That is what it looks like and it feels like to be believing. This is my premise and moves me to my second point. What it looks like to believe is there in verse 17. You know when you are believing, when you have possessed, become possessed of a radically bizarre self-image that holds, on the one hand, humility, but also confidence in the same personality. You ever thought about how hard that is to do? You think to yourself, well, I'm a very humble person. I'm humble. I don't think much of myself. But the very minute that you say that, you're reaching over to pat yourself on the back on how humble you are. Oops, suddenly I'm conceited. Wait a minute. No, I'm terrible. Wait a minute. It's almost impossible to manufacture that. But the gospel of Jesus comes along and says, look, there are two things that are true about you. You are more sinful and more wretched and more depraved than you could possibly imagine. But you are more loved and more accepted and more forgiven in Christ than you could ever dare dream. And both of those things, said Martin Luther, are true at the same time. Simultaneously, both of those are true at any given moment. And I would argue that it makes you an extraordinarily balanced human being. But that's another weekend series that we'll talk about some other time. What I want to suggest to you this, this evening is, though, is that it is a beautiful glimpse into faith. Because only that self-image can despair of itself to look to God and find something worth praising. Faith, the life of faith, is the life of being enraptured with Him. Think about the centurion that we talked about this morning. Wasn't that amazing story? Jesus comes across someone who you know, is honored and respected by the Jewish people. He was a centurion, which means he was Roman, means he was the occupying people, not one of the favorite people among uh, Jewish uh, populations at that time. But they liked this guy. He helped them build their synagogue, for heaven's sakes. And so this guy sends the Jewish leaders to Jesus. And what do they say to him? Do you remember what the passage said? Oh, Jesus, you really need to help this guy because he, he is worthy of your attention. He helped us build our synagogue. And all of a sudden, as if the centurion was conscience-stricken, he sends some of his other servants to say, you know what, actually, you need to tell Jesus this. Look, I'm a man of authority. I tell people where to go and where not to go. To be honest with you, I am not even worthy to have you in my house. 
You see the contrast? The Jewish leaders, the religious people who are constantly trying to prop themselves up with their good deeds say, oh, he is worthy. But you ask the man himself and he looks and goes, I am not worthy. And do you remember Jesus's commendation to that man? He looks and says, I have not found such faith in all of Israel. Folks, this is the point. Faith is simply coming to a point where you realize that my faith is more about Jesus than it is about me. All you need is need. All you need is nothing. But if you try to bring something, you'll get nothing. Because he's the kind of person that only accepts by grace. Okay, now back to my friend's question. Lest I've gotten to a point where I don't even know what it feels like to believe. I can't believe. It's almost as if God has got to help me know how to believe. What do I do? There's something lacking in me. A couple of years after this uh, conversation, I stumbled across a wonderful little book written by a 19th century Scottish pastor named Horatius Bonner called, the, um, called uh, God's Way of Peace. And towards the end of that book, he begins to wrestle with this objection that someone might level when they say, I don't know how to believe. His description, this little paragraph that I'm about to read, was where my life took a turn. I hope it's important for you. It's okay if it's not. But this was a big deal for me, this illustration. Listen to Bonner on this. He says, if the person that you're speaking to says that they cannot believe on Christ because of the difficulty of acting this faith and that a divine power is needed to draw it forth, which he simply does not find. You need to look at him and say that believing in Jesus is no work, but it is a resting on Jesus Christ's work. Listen to this. And that this pretense is as unreasonable as that if a man wearied with a journey and who is not able to go one step farther, should argue to himself thusly, I am so tired that I am not able to lie down and rest. Think about that sentence. For some reason that exploded for me. When someone is gripped in this world of saying, I don't know how to believe, it's like a man who is wearied with a journey, who cannot take one more step, but then says to you, I am so exhausted that I don't think I can rest. What would you say to such a man? You would say, I'm not sure you know what resting is. (laughs) Do you know what it means to cease My friends, the life of faith is coming to a life of brokenness, of emptiness, of saying, I'm going to stop trying to jump through enough hoops to get God on my side. And I'm going to finally admit to him that even my repentance needs to be repentant repented of. Even my believing is flawed. Who is it in the in this in the New Testament that got the most acclamation from Jesus? When Jesus comes and offers him healings, if you believe, then they'll be healed. And you remember what the man says? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's it. In other words, he's saying, yes, I see you. I know that you're able. I know that you can do this. But you've got to understand, it's me. Help my unbelief. That, my friends, is the prayer that God prays. And it's the prayer 
the prayer that God answers. It's the prayer that works on people. I had this most vividly demonstrated in the life of a young man, and I'll finish with this story. The life of a young man that I had in my office a few, many years ago actually, who had gotten to his junior some odd year in college and was what anyone would describe as just a mess. This young man, somewhere around the ages of nine or ten, it's a very interesting uh, uh, illustration because it dates me and him, but you'll get the point. His father had purchased for his family a satellite dish. What you don't know is back in the late 80s, early 90s, satellite dishes were not uh, controlled by the government. There was no regulation over satellite dishes. And my friend was a bit of a geek and found out the way in which you could manipulate this satellite to tune into all things all over the world. From ages 11 or 12 or so, he had begun to feast upon every kind of available pornography that was, all, that was coming from all over the world as a 12-year-old sneaking through his parents' access. He began to talk about his sexual lust as becoming so overwhelming and so overpowering in his life that by the time he got into late high school, his, his, what he thought were natural desires for heterosexual relationships had begun to change into a desire for homosexual relationships which would not be that interesting of themselves, except for the things that he was attracted to were the most illicit forms. Finding himself in places that were what anyone would consider, even the homosexual community, as dangerous places. By the time he got to college, he was out of control. Uh, There were anonymous partners lined up that he could think through. And yet, throughout it all, He still had a religious background that he was trying to reconcile with where he was in the midst of his own confusion. This man had gotten to a point where he would sit in my office and be so conflicted on the inside that he would curl up into a ball in the corner of my office, almost catatonic, not able to move. Now, there were a lot of conversations that I had with this young man, but one in particular stood out to me and him as we spoke about it in the years following At one point, he looked at me and said, Les, you simply do not understand what it's like to wake up every single morning and have the only word in your head be the word pervert. Because that's all I hear when I wake up in the morning. And it's the only thing that overshadows my day from the moment that I get up. And as we began to walk through this message of what the cross was really about, I began to talk to him and say, look, I think that there's really not going to be any healing in you until you begin to see what you think Jesus is about in a different way. Because until you begin to see him as being perversion on the cross, I'm not sure you're ever going to work through this. And he looked at me and he said, that sounds blasphemous. And I said, well, it's supposed to. It's the offense of the cross. Martin Luther once said that we are to so clothe Christ in our sin so that we see him as being the blasphemer. We see him as being the liar. We see him as being the pervert. So that when in the midst of the cross, Jesus shouts out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see him bearing the forsakenness that everyone who has come to the end of their moral rope feels. 
my friend began to sort of put the pieces back together. I was actually dealing with a lot of things these days, but doing much better. My friends, let me ask you a question. Has Christ ever been that for you? Because whether you find yourself having pursued a path of irreligion tonight, or whether you find yourselves of having pursued a path of religion, it is well within the realm of possibility that you have never yet believed. Because Jesus has not been that. Perhaps he has been the cosmic rule giver for which you have tried to shirk responsibility. Perhaps he's been the cosmic rule giver that has kept you under his thumb and guilt ridden for the last four years. But perhaps he could be the one who could look at you and say, look, I love you. And I love you enough to say that you are the worst. But I love you enough to say that because you're the worst, you can be the best. Because I became the worst so that you could become the best. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you this evening then engage that mechanism inside of our souls that looks to things, that looks to you, that looks to the world, that looks to our vocations, our careers, longing for something to deal with what's going on inside of our souls. And so, Father, in the only way that we know how, in the quietness of prayer, perhaps in the words of a song that we're getting ready to sing, maybe in the quietness of laying our head to bed tonight, would you draw our hearts towards you, that maybe in you we might find something that truly corresponds with our nature and that we might be connected to you, bound up with you, in union with you. And in so doing, have it usher forth in wonder and love and praise. Lord Jesus, if you were to do that, it would have made our weekend trip here worthwhile. We ask it all in Jesus' name.